So how is it coming on, Marco? Uh, and for those that don't, I mean, are aware, this is your... Don't book. give away the name of the title. Jesus. Oh, sorry. Is that a secret still? It's a working title. It's a working title. Working title. <laughs> Historical thriller. And this is the book partially written, which scooped you an agent at... Uh... It did, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's, it's going well, but you know... Well, actually, I'm making pretty good progress on it. Um, I'm quite pleased with the word count, where it's at. Whether the quality is there, I'm not sure. <laughs> Qualities yeah. for redrafts. Exactly. Well, how many words you up to now? Um, about 20,000. But nice. of course, we're coming up for NaNoWriMo as we record this. Are you going to use it as I a big know. push? I like, I'm not sure I would... What is NaNoWriMo? The target's 50,000 words, I think, yeah. over the month. Which so it's all... like a what, one and a half thousand words or 1,200 words a day or something? Yeah, I mean, which I suppose isn't... When you break it down like that, it's not that bad. But to do it every single day is pretty difficult like i mean if i could do fifty thousand words in a month i'd have to book almost finished yeah by the i mean end of November, which i've i've tried it a few times in the past and i think for me the the the, the opening week is amazing because it's all exciting and you and you're banging out a thousand words and then you miss a couple of days and suddenly you're like oh shit now i need to do like five thousand yeah. words to catch up and it becomes really impossible once you fall behind that's what i've always found yeah well, but I, it's I, still a good yeah good like i think that's what i've never i mean you know we've spoken to hundreds of people on this podcast and they all have different methods and some people do like targets and some people don't and I think I'm someone that doesn't like I think I'm more about getting into a routine of writing every day but not yep. saying I must write a thousand words today kind yeah. of thing and then, and then you feel bad when you don't hit it and yeah exactly yeah. negatively affects your mental state and you you know you get, you get the stress level start to go up and I feel that's not conducive to good writing so it uh, the, the, the flip side is that I think if you from what I've seen online, if you do it properly and get into like a community of people who are doing it and then that kind of, that buzz of talking about it with everyone, you're all in it together, that can be quite a, a nice thing, I suppose, if you're if you're doing it that way. I've, I've only ever done it myself and yeah, when you, as I say, when you fall behind, it becomes, I just give up. Yeah. It, yeah, it's just one of these things that the mountain becomes bigger and bigger. If, you know, you yeah. can get things that are graphing it for you and if you miss a couple of days, then suddenly you have to, yeah, that, that climb becomes very, very steep to to be able to hit the target. So, I mean, I suppose even if you do it, and after a week you give up, if you if that's given you seven thousand words in a week, I guess that's still quite good. Yeah, no, it's still valuable. Yeah, you've yeah. it will definitely kickstart a story if if it's something that you've you're yeah. just starting, then that would be a great kickstart. To but twenty thousand words is awesome, man, and that's like you've you've that's been not that long a space of time as well. Yeah, no, you've, you've it, it's definitely that. it's definitely getting there. So, um. We shall see. We shall see. But it's one of the reasons that today's episode of Page One, the Writer's Podcast, which is what you're listening to and not just a random conversation, <laughs> uh, episode 181, um, it's it's the last in the current series because we both, I think, need some time yeah. just to actually <laughs> do some writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're taking some well-deserved time off, especially Marco, who I think if you're having to write a book and edit the podcast every week, it would probably drive you insane, so... We yeah, deserve time off. It does um, take up a bit of time. So yeah, so we will, we will be. Uh, this is our last episode of the current run, but we will be back. We never go away for uh, that long. I imagine we'll be away for a few weeks and then back. Certainly before the end of the year, with some new episodes. Uh, if you haven't checked out our back catalogue of uh, various writers, authors, screenwriters, comic writers, journalists, uh, please do check that out because there's bound to be someone you like. But we're ending this run of episodes with not one, but two brilliant guests. Yeah, indeed. We're chatting with the wonderful Richard Cadry and Cassandra Caw. And uh, Richard Cadry, or Cadry? I hope I'm saying that right. Um, he is a big writer. He's written, I think, over 19 novels, 15 of which are New York Times bestsellers. He's a freelance writer, photographist. Uh, his Sandman Slim novels, that's probably the, big, the biggest series that he's known for, which is about yeah. the main character, James... Sandman, Slim Stark, who escapes from hell Hitman to take his hell. revenge. A hitman from hell. Uh, yeah, and folk have killed his lover. And he wanders a dark Los Angeles haunted by vampires and demons, which is a very, very cool sounding setup. 
um, and he's teamed up with Cassandra Kaw, who is is a Malaysian writer. They do horror and science fiction. Uh, they also write video games, role playing tabletop games, uh, journalist games, journalist tech journalist. Uh, they've really done a whole bunch of really cool stuff written for Eurogamer, The Verge, Engadget, etc. And uh, and as I say, their kind of jam is more horror science fiction. So they've teamed up together to write this book, The Dead Take the A-Train, together. Yeah, and, and it's, they talk to us about what the book's about, and it, it sounds great. Um, we've not mm. had the chance to read it ourselves, but it does sound great. Uh, and just really interesting speaking to them about both their own process, which, processes which differ, but also working together and it turns out that the way that they wrote a book together wasn't to sort of do chapter by chapter or anything they basically wrote the book separately yeah. and then had two versions of the book which they then sort of melded together essentially it sounded yeah, like it's it's Wait. it's you know we've said before writing a book with someone is very different than writing like a screenplay isn't it it's it's so it's just so much more to write i suppose yeah that's right i mean but it, you know, I think it sounds like they're very happy with where it ended up uh, and the yeah. suggestions that each of each of them made to to sort of improve it. And I can see that that you know because writing a book is, as we've said so many times before, very very solitary, mm-hmm. and you can sometimes get lost in it. So having someone else working on the same thing can probably help pull you through those those difficult yeah. bits. I suspect. And I suppose it must. I wish it's a question. I wish I'd ask them now. It must make you think. I won't stress too much about that getting their words on the page because there's someone else who will do a pass and they'll rewrite it a little bit and they'll bring it up and you're always someone else always pulling your work up, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah, you've always got you've yeah you'll always you know that it will always progress. I suppose, which is yeah, what exactly. sometimes you worry about when you're writing your own. So stuff. as long as you're the first person, just write the shit down and, and let them <laughs> fix it. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Well, um, uh, we've rambled on enough anyway, so we will uh, get straight into the podcast after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to wish you all well for the season break i guess <laughs> but for now on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear well we all know the best advice for a writer is Right. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I always start the podcast with the same question, which is, um, did you always want to be a writer? So was it always both of your ambitions to be to be writers? Uh, let's start with Cassandra. Um, I wanted to be a forensic specialist. <laughs> I was a car kid. Um, growing up, that's all I genuinely wanted to do in between, I don't know, being a marine biologist and playing with dolphins. Yeah, I think I, I apparently wanted to play with was corpses. But then my mother made it very clear during my uh, 
advent into the college era, she said very distinctly, no child of mine is going to play with corpses. Because 20 years later, I became a horror writer. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, no, I did not actually start out wanting to be a writer. Okay. And so what was it that, that drew you into being a writer then? Oh, I think it's pure, it was purely circumstantial in some ways. Part of it was definitely because, so I speak English as a third language. Uh, my background is in computer engineering. And it was, I think, sheer chance that a friend of mine casually was like, would you like to write an article for this website I'm starting up? And I was like, sure, why not? I wrote an article, absolutely no one responded to it. A friend of mine is, was like, what did you expect? You're <laughs> we're, you're from a developing nation. This is not your speciality. Like, don't be crazy, Cass. You're never going to be able to do it. Then I promptly weighed toward the idea and got to where I am today. I was sheer spite. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what about you, Richard? What, what was your uh, ambition when you were younger? Was it a writer? Uh, I wanted to be a cowboy or an astronaut. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> I get the answer, um, not for sure. Yeah. I ended up as a writer. It, it wasn't a hard leap for me. Um, my mother was a reporter on a local newspaper in New York. So I was surrounded by all the tools of writing. And I got to see her work on projects. And I got to see her running around, interviewing people, going to the police station in the middle of the night to get information on for stories. And it would all when you're a kid, that was all pretty exciting. So I started um, writing more in school and the more the teachers hated me and the more the students liked me or liked my work, I kind of knew that there was something going on. Mm -hmm. So I, ju I just kept with it. Excellent. And Cassandra, you grew up in Malaysia um, and I read uh, an interview with you and you talked about a childhood that was steeped in ghosts and legends and and parents that made you watch horror films like The Thing at a very young age, which is just fantastic. And I wonder, did that influence your, you know, desire to tell these dark stories? I, very much so. It's hard not to want to if you grow up in such an environment. Like, mm -hmm. it just feels natural. Ghost stories, myths, legends. When I was a kid, they were never presented as this thing that the ancients talked about or highbrow kind of stuff. It was just part and parcel of daily life. Malaysia, I think, still has the most festival-related holidays in the entire world. Every time one culture had a festival, everyone celebrated. Everyone knew about it. Everyone understood. And... There was always a slightly dark bend to it all, I think, because so much of Malaysia, at least when I was growing up, was still wild in many ways. The jungles were endlessly creeping onto even the capital city, and everyone was just constantly waging war against the vines crawling up the sides of the buildings, and you'd get like army ants inside your house. Uh, when I was a kid in school, I remember just one seeing this giant bloody boa constrictor or something just casually wandering the school grounds and nobody batted an eyelash because that's <laughs> how life was. And when you live so close to just chaotic nature like that, it's hard to see the world as a simple sanitized place. You know, something wants to eat you and something is just there. <laughs> wanting to eat you um so my parents they had a lighting business when i was growing up and they supplied lights for this like french villa-ish thing on the in the highlands in malaysia which is not really highlands honestly but they like to pretend and there were two tigers apparently that just left in the jungle no one did anything about it the Villa opened for public use and you could still hear jungle like the tigers roaring casually in the jungle <laughs> just how it worked. You were like, okay, they're just tigers there. It sounds like you were almost destined to end up writing horror with A little bit, yes. Yeah. Probably didn't help that my parents made me watch the thing at a young age and all the horror movies at a young age. That leaves an impression, I swear to God. <laughs> 
And and Richard, you obviously you you found your big success with the Sandman Slim books, but um, I'd read that when you know obviously they weren't your first novels, and at that point with the first Sandman Slim book, you'd almost said to yourself, if this doesn't work out, then I'll need to think of something else to do because this isn't this isn't working. I mean, you know how how long had you been how long had you been writing at that point and you know, what was the mindset there? I've been writing since I was a kid and I'd published, I think three novels and about three other nonfiction books by the time I came to Sandman Slim and none of them had ever earned out their advances. And I just really felt like I was beating my head against the wall. So when it came to Sandman Slim, I just made a deal with myself that I was going to write this book see what happened but if it bombed like the others that would be it for books i was just going to stick to stories things like that and to my surprise it worked out really well i mean there was a little bidding war for the first book and then we ended up and i sold three and then i was able to sell three more and then we ended up you know just doing the whole series of 12 because that was that was the idea. Once I started, um, I had I had that first little arc of three, but I knew I wanted to go further. Mm-hmm. So I got to do six, and that was the first arc of the story. And then I knew that I wanted to kind of reboot the thing with seven. So then I had a second arc of uh, six books, and my publisher let me do it. I got away with a lot and I I'm still really appreciate that they stood behind me that long. And and those books are inspired by the Parker series of books famously by Richard Stark, um, which I believe was an inspiration for the name of one of the characters in the series. Um, and, and what, I, I just wanted to know, what was it about those books in particular that really inspired you? I read those when I was young and I'd never read anything like them before. They were so hard and unforgiving and the prose the prose felt like it was carved out of concrete and the characters were so tough and blunt and i always wondered if you could apply if you could take what they would um richard stark did in those thrillers and apply it to science fiction or fantasy and i when i switched from science fiction I really, it seemed like a nice time with um, the Sandman Slim books to try that out. Mm-hmm. The thing, the the thing I added to it was humor, mm-hmm. because I I figured out very early on that you can chop off and as many heads as you want as long as you make it funny. <laughs> yeah, and it was that combination that kind of got me that got Sandman Slim going. And and I suppose it, we didn't ask you it, sort of taking a step back, but for both of you, I mean, what? How was it? How did you find your f- first steps into publishing? Did you did you find an agent first? Did you find a publisher first? What what route did you take in? Um, mine was a fairly interesting route. So I spent some time as a journalist, and that kind of beat it into me that when you write, you should get paid for your writing journey right when you're getting paid. And publishing seems like a very odd creature as a result of it. But Abaddon Books in the UK did this open call for their novella series. Uh, they sort of do this like tie-in worlds, but not really tie-in worlds kind of thing where writers create stories in a shared universe that you slowly grow. It's It's complicated. And I was like, you know what? There is a set amount of money there. There is a deadline. Why not? Let, let's give it a shot. And Rupert Wong Cannibal Chef became my first published novella. And I was absolutely delighted for, about it. Um, yeah, that, that was how it started. The agent came later and in very strange ways because a deal was announced. He followed me on Twitter and I DM'd him and went, Will you be my agent? <laughs> and my agent likes to tell the story of how he looked up from his computer, looked over at his boss, and went, can they do that? And the boss <laughs> apparently laughed and was like, sure, why not? 
and I've been with the same agent for like eight, nine years now. Excellent. Yeah, that is, to be fair, that is, we've spoken to a lot of authors. That's that's the first time we've heard that, that particular <laughs> route. Um, uh, Richard, what, what about you? I got my, um, I sent my first novel, Metrophage. I'd been to the Clarion Workshop, and one of my teachers was an editor at Ace, and I just wrote him a letter saying, I have a book, can I send it to you? And he said, sure. And he read it, and wrote back fairly quickly just saying, yeah, I want this. So I could take that. A friend of mine already had an agent and I just went to her and said, I have a book. (laughs) Will you represent me? And, you know, already having half a book deal, it was pretty easy to just, to just have her say, yeah, come on board. Was it Ginger or is it someone else? No, that was somebody else. Ginger, Ginger's my second agent. Um, And I, I, I just love her. She's just, she's just the best. And and I wanted to ask about how you guys, you, you um, you're obviously working your own uh, books and 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 your own work, and both being very successful in in your own space. And then you've you've thought, let's work on a project together. And am I right in saying you guys met via Twitter? Is that that was the first time you interacted? That is correct. Before? Yes. Yep. I got very sad about stolen Kindle, and Richard got very angry about it, which is how we know we click. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 happened there then? Um, someone stole my Kindle right off my hotel room. All right, oh, right. It was really distressing because I was nomadic back then, and when you're nomadic, you don't really get to carry too many books with you because you have to choose between your clothes or your books, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. clothes when when you're basically living out of a suitcase. So my Kindle was my everything, was my whole library, just crammed into one tiny device and someone just took it. And I was just so sad. And and the, you saw this on Twitter, did you, Richard? And... Yeah. It really pissed me off. I mean, you don't steal someone's library. Yeah. Especially I'm, when they're on the road like that. I'm very distracted by Richard's giant, fat, black scarf. <laughs> yes, for those so for those that, get, that are listening, uh, Richard's got picked up his cat. Here. What's the cat's name? Aces. Aces. And his sister's name is Eights, so it's Aces and Eights. Nice. nice. I like it. Nice. And Aces is very round and very fluffy. Yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of clingy right now because we've been on tour, so I've been gone for a week. And oh, okay. He's yeah, extra clingy. Yeah, he is. And. This is <laughs> this is what you get after a week. <laughs> yeah, so you you bonded over this over this you know theft of the Kindle, but how did that lead to working on a novel together? We, we talked for some time and we brought up well, we talked about maybe collaborating. As always, it's just a question of like conversations. And Richard had the outline for the Dead Takes the A Train. And it kind of went from there. Very skeletal outline for it. So there was plenty of room for the two of us to expand on the characters and the story. And was it an idea to, had you always thought it would be fun to write with someone else? Or was it something that just spontaneously sort of happened? I think every writer carries it in their brain that it might be fun to write a book with someone else. Mm-hmm. Without realizing the consequences of writing a book for someone else, and the sheer amount of work that goes into it, there is a lot more work. I think into a collaborative piece. That's yeah. what you write solo, surprisingly. It's a big learning curve. So big. Writing a book with someone. Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit because, like, I read online that you your process when you're working on the book was uh started off doing alternate chapters but that didn't mm-hmm. work out so so what, what what was the process what did, what did you end up doing we ended up essentially writing and editing a draft each so we would just pass the draft to and fro it led to us i think writing about three hundred thousand words wow something like that as a result because we kept doing passes on it and like Every draft is essentially already finished. But if you're going over a draft, you do end up tweaking a lot of things. You change the momentum, you change the pacing, the phrasing, you move dialogue around. So yeah, it's essentially like writing a whole book all over again. 
I said, you know where we are going. And and did you have, uh, you know, before you started that process, did you have, you said that you had a sort of very skeletal idea at the start, Richard, but did you have um, more of an outline before you actually both started writing it? Or was it just the, these basic sort of temples through the story and then you just had to go at each? Yeah, by the time we started working on the book, we'd outlined, we fleshed out the outline a lot. But there were still gaps in it. And I think gaps in an outline are a good thing. When I'm working on my own, I'll outline the book, but then I'll leave little holes in it. And what those are for is room to improvise. And it's room for the story and the characters to veer off in different directions. You can't let things go too far afield. But if a character decides to make a small decision that takes a story in that direction. Um, you follow them to see what happens. And often by the end of my own books, I'll end up with five or six outlines. So even though, you know, people think if you outline a book, you're just stuck with it. It's like, no, outlining is just almost a series of suggestions and you can adhere to them or you can throw them away. And we kind of did that with the Dead Take the A Train, where we had a structure, but it changed a lot over the course of actually writing the book. And and did you have any points where each of you thought something else should happen to a character or something like that? Did you have any things like that that you had to talk through or, or explore? Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever have to like talk through a point like that. One person might feel that something needed to happen in the, a certain way, and the other was always just supportive of it. I think one of the reasons the work the book work was we trust each other, and we mm. neither of us have an ego when it comes to creation. So there's no pushback because hey, this was my idea. I liked it the way it was. Mm -hmm. um, if the other person was like, hey, I think this is going to work better, I, yeah, we just ran with it. Nice, and and where do you guys start from when you're when you're coming from a from something cold and you think you know where do you, where's the whole it's that horrible question of where do you get your ideas from I suppose but I think I mean Richard I'm sure I read online that you have a process where it's almost like automatic writing and you kind of put words and images on paper with no connection or purpose and then a pattern emerges eventually and that's what gets you going is that is that still what you do Yeah, often I'll have notebooks full of images names, places, very basic ideas. And as I go along, certain groups of these things will come together. Um, with Sandman Slim, it literally started with two sentences. In one, one notebook, I had character name Sandman Slim. In another notebook, I had the, I had the phrase Hitman from Hell. And for, And on one day, those two things stuck together. And I just kept expanding from there. And it was the same thing with Dead Take the A-Train. I had Julie. Uh, originally, this was set in Los Angeles. But very quickly, it became clear that this is not an L.A. book. So I worked out. Like I said, it was really skeletal at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, it was some a few paragraphs and some of the characters. And I think, I think a lot of... I think Julie's friends and some of the villains were were present at that point, but that was really about it. Each of us got to expand as much as we wanted to on both the story and the characters. And that actually, that's a good point for me to jump in and say, we've not actually asked you to give us that, yeah. that sort of pitch for the novel. Do you want to tell us just briefly what, what it's about? You have the better pitch. You were so very Richard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what the book is about is Julie Cruz. She's a magic operative in New York, but she's down on her luck. She's been screwed over by lovers, by corporations, and by her own bad habits. So at a crisis point in her life, she decides to go find her guardian angel to see if someone to take care of her. And what she finds is something very different and something very awful and something she's let loose and she has to contain again. 
And that's that's the really basic outline of what the book's about. Cool. It's also a rom-com dressed up in Halloween clothes. <laughs> Very or much. He was sapphic idiots who really, really put new meaning to the phrase um, slow burn. Yes. <laughs> They're really, really bad about it. And I wanted to ask about your editing processes because I think it's I'm always fascinated when you've got two people who, who are both writers and they then decide to work on one book because um, you know and, and, and how well their processes work up in, in sync because Cassandra I think I read online that you kind of edit as you go and, and you spend hours on a single sentence sometimes until it sounds right in your head and and I wondered how did that style mesh with Richards? Did you have to change anything, or did, or did he change for he, for you, or did it just kind of work? Um, I think because of the way we're just passing the entire drafts around, it worked really well. Each of us would go through something in our own way, tweaking in the way we want, and the other person would just go over it. So there were places where Richard trimmed down. My prose, because he preferred it leaner, which I was just completely okay with. And there were also bits I recall, especially in the poor prologue that did not survive to the um, actual book, where Richard would leave just like bits where it's like, and something terribly violent happened here, which is <laughs> flesh out. And what's, what's, your, what's your normal process, Richard? Do you tend to edit on the go as well, or do you try to get a vomit draft down and then come back to it later? I edit a bit on, on the on the go but also what i like to do is i like to write a chunk every day mm-hmm. um leaving leaving kind of a hole at the end i never finish anything at the end of the day i always leave a leading sentence at the end something to begin with the next day so i'm not just staring at a blank page but then when i start the next day the first thing i do is i'll go over the previous day's work do some editing there, and that'll get my brain going. And um, then I can just start on the new day's work. Such a good process. I do something very similar, actually, except it's in regards to word count. I try to hit at least a thousand words a day, but I secretly aim for like a little bit more than that. So when I start the next day's word count, I'm already a little bit into it. So I feel the confidence is a total lie by words. Oh, so if you write 1,300 words one day, you can back those 300 words towards the next day's program. Mm-hmm. Yes, ah, but so I always I like end up writing like, still like 1,300 words anyway. Yeah, you're going um, to because... keep that 300 words keep each day ahead of you. Yeah. yeah. So like that kind of little psychological boost you have going into Yes, writing. absolutely. It's completely a lie that I'm telling <laughs> myself, and I'm so aware of it, but somehow my subconscious has it caught up to it and i'm not telling it to yeah i mean it's it's similar as well some people we've spoken to have said you know they'll stop in the middle of a sentence or something and it's easier for them to then pick up the next day because they're not having to start that but you know they they know how that sentence finishes so then that sort of helps them kickstart the rest of the writing the next day so i suppose everyone has their own their own little cheats or whatever to 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 trick their mind into going yeah, I think it's a marathon at the end of the day and all writers have to find a way to trick themselves much like a real marathon it's yeah. hard it it takes a lot of endurance it's a tough process As for, God knows by the middle of the book every single writer is crying about the fact that like we don't know what we're doing this is the worst book ever why did we ever think we could ever be <laughs> writing yeah this is the book that destroys our career yeah. yes every book is that book until you reach yes. like three quarters mark and you're like you know what actually this is not bad Run the repeat and and uh, i want to ask as well about something you said richard which was that you should always have a project on the go um so when you're presumably when you're you finish drafting you immediately start something else and in your case sometimes i know you also are a photographer as well so that's something else that you can be doing at the time and things like that but is that is that important for you for the to keep the sort of creativity going? Oh yeah, I always like to have. Well, both of us always have multiple projects going. I haven't done photography much for a while because I like working with people, and COVID kind of screwed that up. Right. So right now, instead of when I want to take a break from writing, I, I'm I'm I have a band and um, a demon in Fun City, 
and we compose music together. So that's that's sort of my break when I don't want to th- don't want words in my head. I'll go back to music because sometimes I just need a break from words. Mm-hmm. But there's always something going on. There's multiple writing projects at the same time. I have a new book out today called The Pale House Devil that came out today, and I'm finishing the sequel uh, next week. Nice. Uh, I would have finished it this week, but we're but we're touring instead. So. Um, and I have some stories in another novella in the process. And Cass, I know, has piles of stuff that that they're working on. I know what you mean, because there can be a danger, can't there, that if you sort of stop, if you put the brakes on something like that, the process, then it can be very difficult to pick up again. I suppose it's like a, a tanker or a train or something. It's it's difficult to get mm-hmm. going again if you, if you stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a trick whenever I get stuck like this. Like if I do have a period where I, for whatever reason, I don't write and you're trying to get things kickstarted. This is an old writing class trick is to take a book you like and type out a page from it. Okay. And that just, that's this thing with your brain where it's just putting words through your head again and through your hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. And that helps me a lot. So I'll just, I'll just grab something, type a page and then just stop immediately and start onto my own work again. And it always works. I suppose you can kind of carry the voice or the tone of that work into your own work if you're trying to, if that's kind of vibe that you're going for as well. No, I, I never have problems with switching from somebody else's style to my own, except for Cormac McCarthy. I cannot read Cormac McCarthy when I'm working <laughs> because I will end up writing like Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> He's got a very distinct voice, doesn't he? Yes. And Cassandra, um, I think I read somewhere in an interview you said um, that a piece of advice you would offer young writers would be that it's okay to make money off your passions. And and I wondered, is there a stigma you think out there that you know selling your art is almost like you're selling out? Oh God, yeah. People get. I feel like America, especially. Oof, sorry, I've also have a giant orange cat that will not Alicia <laughs> collides. Uh, with my table um i think especially for america talking about money is a little bit taboo if you're going to do something artistic it has to be for the love of the art and i think because we do live in this era of late stage capitalism um, a lot of people do prey on that they do Mm. tell people if you're doing something you love you should do it regardless of how much you get paid and Mm. like no Everything is expensive right now. Make sure people pay you exactly what you're worth. Because if you don't ask, you're not going to get it, especially if you're from a marginalized demographic. Um, if you look at the scales, advances, um, salaries, it is disproportionately lower for people from marginalized communities. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was speaking to some other writers on a, on a online forum that I'm on, and they were saying that there is a sort of attitude in publishing or there can be an attitude in publishing that is very much like you're so, you know, they, they treat the authors as like, you're so lucky to be here. You're so like, so you, you just accept this. This is what the terms are. This is how, you know, instead of paying you every, in, in three chunks, we're going to pay you in four chunks over a wider, longer period and you're just going to have to put up with that. So yeah. I think it is important for authors to realise that they can st- push back sometimes in that, in that regard. And also mm-hmm. going to add, like, this is something that affects edit- editors and people who work in publishing as well. Most of these decisions come from on high, from stakeholders and stuff like that. Because editors, um, regardless of their ranks, market- marketing people, salespeople, publicists, they do not get paid enough. And they're more or less obligated to work in New York City, one of the most expensive cities in the world, if not the most expensive city in the world. It's it's just generally terrible if you work in a creative industry because capitalism has just resulted as in us being in this position. Yeah, and you've both written either for or about video games to some to some degree, and I wondered what's your views on storytelling and games, and how does it differ to books? Is it more freeing in a way, or is it is is the scope almost a hindrance when you're trying to tell a, a, a tight story? Oh, I guess I'll take this one since I'm the full-timer. Yes. <laughs> uh, so when you write any amount of linear 
linear media or for any kind of linear media, there is almost this covenant that takes place between the creative and the audience. The creator says, I am going to lead you down an experience for a certain number of hours and you will trust me along this journey. Mm -hmm. The audience is under no obligation, of course, to stay to the end of the journey. They can fuck off and say, oh, this is a terrible piece of media. I don't like it. But with video games, it is something else entirely. Even if we're talking about really linear stuff like point and click adventure games, Mm -hmm. it's a lie. It is a giant lie that we tell to players. In every single one of these games, there is almost this tacit promise that there is a giant world and you can explore and do anything you want it. It's true for even games like Call of Duty because you can explore, you can see different corners, etc, etc. And this fiction needs to be sold with an enormous amount of constraints working in the back. There is no way any game can really truly create an open world like that. You are endlessly leading people down a certain path, in many cases, to like one, two endings. And so the entirety of writing for games is supporting this lie, supporting this magic trick. And it's also writing for three different demographics all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Everyone from the shooting GPU speedrunner who wants to finish the game in 20 minutes to the guy who is going to have an argument on Reddit across the span of 500 comments about a small little pip on a lieutenant's shoulder. You have to do all of this while also supporting the game design, while supporting the audio, supporting the art. Because the narrative is not the main thing necessarily in any video game, which is weird to say. It is also about the experience of it, how satisfying it is to go through the game loops, to shoot, to explore, to collect loot. And they're all, I guess, organs in a very large metaphorical body. And it is such a different beast from writing for any other media, I think. Well, yeah, I, w- I was going to ask about that because th- there are... There are obviously very different types of of games you've you've got something like say that is very linear and narrative driven something like the last of us or something like that compare it to uh, richard you've written uh, books about mist and and riven which are Mm -hmm. um you know puzzles puzzle games with a narrative that the player almost creates for themselves through the exploration of the game and at the same time, they're both they're both forms of storytelling, but a, a very different type of storytelling. The Last of Us, bearing in mind everything that you just said there, Cass, but The Last of Us seems to me to be a more traditional form of storytelling in the sense that there is a story that the, the creators are trying to push you through, and so you see almost every bit of it. Um, whereas with something like Mist, a lot of it's left much more up to the mind of the player uh, and uh, to work it out themselves and almost have their own interpretations of things. I agree. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of the video game dilettante here. Yeah, yeah. I've only done a little work. So Cass, Cass is the one to uh, really speak up for video games. Yeah. My, my work is still NDA stuff that I really enjoyed um, and, and, gets very complex at points, but like Cass's work, you're, you're drawing people to a certain point mm-hmm. um, from this, from this broad world. And it doesn't have a lot of, it does not have a lot to do with writing, uh, writing prose to me. I, I don't think for either one of us, I don't think I learned anything from the games that is going to play into novel writing <laughs> i'm laughing because richard is answering the question that was not asked that actually gets asked in every single other interview with <laughs> yeah I, I was interested about um the shorter fiction that you've you've written um cassandra and you know you've written tons of short short stories and novellas and and you said that well two questions i suppose first of all you said that an interview somewhere that you, you never set out to write anything of a specific length. You know, the story just kind of settles mm-hmm. at the length that it settles at. And, and I wondered, how do you know when a story is complete? And how do you know when there's nothing more you have to add to it? Um, 
I think it becomes intuitive after a while when you've written enough of them and sold enough of them. You recognize the patterns in your own writing and in your own storytelling. Mm -hmm. And you start to rely on them. The same way if you look at a little old grandmother trying to cook stew, she never measures out how much salt or spices she Mm -hmm. puts in the pot. She just kind of knows at a glance how it works by the smell, by the texture and stuff like that. And I think that becomes, that is true for writing as well. You do something enough, you understand it by intuition, it becomes muscle memory. And Richard, is that, is that the same with you with novels? I mean, I know that <laughs> certain book contracts and stuff can say, right, you're to deliver a novel of a specific length or whatever, you know. And, it, you know, it can be it can be difficult to visualize how long is this going to, you know, will this story settle in at that length? But it, is it like Cass says, it's just something that becomes intuitive and you kind of know the, how to, you know, massage the story or, or tell the story in the in the length that's given, essentially. Yeah, with books, it's no problem. Uh, I, my brain, I started off writing books more than stories. Mm-hmm. So stories were a secondary thing for me. So I, my brain always works in terms of books first. And I've never had problems hitting any kind of word, word count my uh, publishers want. Stories are a lot more prob- problematic for me. Um, people are always asking me like, oh, can you write a 3000 word story for this? And I end up writing five to 7,000. One time I wrote 12,000 because <laughs> that's what the story needed. Yeah. Obviously, the, all the stories got rejected by the publication that wanted them. <laughs> um, except in one case where they simply ported me over to a different project. But yeah, you know, it is very intuitive. You know, at a certain point, what a story is, even if you didn't know starting out. As the story goes on, it presents itself to you. Yeah, yeah. What's the what's the market like for for shorter fiction at, at, at the moment? Yeah, I was I was kind of had in my head that you know, marketer uh, kind of publishers didn't really know what to do with novellas or how to market them or or they didn't sell well. But but I mean, is, is that totally ro- nonsense? Is there, is there a good market for for writing shorter fiction? There is an excellent market for novellas right now. I think. Um, I think it's partially because of how social media and how our general consumption of media has changed over recent years. We're used to shorter form fiction, TikTok, stuff like that. So we want something that is bite-sized so we can go back to the absolute onslaught of media that we have available. And again, we, we live in late stage capitalism. And I say this with all love because money needs to happen on every level. Um, but Tora saw, I think, a fair amount of successes with novellas. And that opened the door for even more novellas to come out. And it's become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like mm-hmm. there is an industry now because the first few sold and then more people got into it. And now everyone's like, well, novellas are a thing. So people have yeah. started buying novellas very casually as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, shorter Fiction-wise, if we're talking about actual short stories, novellas, and stuff like that, it's such an such a complicated environment right now with all the changes in Amazon publishing and the deals and the new policies they've had. Um, the short fiction market has become unstable. It's there is not enough money going around. Despite the fact that every single one of those magazines are replete with fantastic editors who know exactly what they're doing, who go above and beyond to find the best stories to put out there. And they're struggling. I wince every time I see another short story market close because that is another venue gone. And I don't know what to do about it. So economically speaking, I think the short fiction market is suffering. But I don't know if we've ever been in a time when we've had better stories. Like the stuff that comes out, yeah. even from debut authors, it's just, it's amazing. And the story, and I have one other thing, the story, the story market is it's really screwed up right now. Uh, several big publications have just shut down submissions because of AI. Yeah, it was about to They were being flooded. Idiots were sending five and six stories at a time all done with chat uh, GPI. 
and it they just they just had to stop because they suddenly went from a handful of stories that they could go through to hundreds flooding into the submissions and they just shut the doors and they're trying to figure out how to go forward in this environment uh short story markets were already inundated before that on average like if you look at the dark they were already getting a few hundred submissions and now it is up to like i think some places what four digits close to four digits mm-hmm. and three quarters of that has suddenly become dross so it's yeah. not even a few dozen stories are now being inflated by hundreds of terrible submissions. They're already, they've been waiting through a flood for years, and now it's just worse. It is a monster. Well, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's what people don't understand, isn't it? They, they, they can hear about this, but it's not that these AI stories are, are any good. It's just that they block everything else out because they're just mm-hmm. there's so many people just using them and submitting uh, taking up all the space and then the, the bandwidth essentially of 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 submission of real submissions they're yeah. just wearing down and the poor unfortunate editors half of which seems to be doing this purely on a volunteer basis yeah. like mm-hmm. it requires so much thought and so much love and so much attention to go through these stories i don't blame people for just being exhausted and i worry if it's going to burn out people eventually yeah um, so, I mean, we've got, uh, Richard, you've got another book out today. You've The Dead Take the A-Train is, is the one that, that you both worked on. I mean, is uh, what, what are you both working on next? Uh, I am working on multiple things in the day job front, but they're all NDA, so I can't really talk about any of them. But yeah. next year should see a tie-in novel for a very big property that I love that a lot of people might know if they like watching, you know, Twitch streams. I'm just okay. leaving it at that. Okay, excellent. I think I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, Nice. Okay. We're, we're not going to talk about it because I have an NDA, but as long as people sort of know. Okay, excellent. I don't I don't sort of know. Could you give me more of a hint? I can give you an after <laughs> okay. time. Okay, tell me after Richard, what about you? I'm finishing the sequel to The Pale House Devil uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I have a new book out. Well, not a new book out, but I have a new book that I'm working on that I also can't talk about, but uh, is is pretty far along. And we'll see how it goes. I'm, I, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's one I've had in the back of my brain for a long time. So... A lot of my ideas are like that. They they sit in they sit in my head for a long time, and then just they just sort of pop out at the right moment. What was the last book that you read? Uh, I'm gonna go Richard first for this. I got an arc of the uh, Plague Busters by Lindsay Fitzharris, and it's a it's a story tracing. It's a story. Uh, it's the stories of, of disease in mankind and how it's changed culture. And we conquered them over time. And it's really fascinating. If you're, if you're into diseases, it's a great one. Excellent. Nice. That sounds good. What about yourself, Cassandra? Um, the Briar Book of the Dead by Angela Slater, which is coming out soonish, I think. Uh, Slater writes the best switches in the game, I think. Uh, and her characters tend to be dark. They tend to be just beautifully practical in a way I think not many authors allow their female characters to be. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, people need to pre-order it now. That's all I say. Excellent. Um, what about the last film that you both watched then? Uh, Richard, you go first last film yeah um what the hell what's the title um no one will save you oh yeah uh-huh. oh yeah is it a disney plus so yeah is it, is it i don't good? remember i don't remember who has it but, probably hulu uh, i think oh hulu in the states, hulu in the hulu? states yeah. okay um, but yeah i've heard good things about that it's really good it has a very controversial ending nice. and i i that's all i want to say but um yeah it's a really impressive film cool excellent I already watched Legally Blonde. 
<laughs> I, I tend to gravitate towards rom-coms and silliness when it comes to my media, which I think always surprises people. But I write so much dark stuff and I work on so much dark stuff. There needs to be some part of my life that is just pure fluff. That's that's fair enough. And what, what staying on the same note, what what about TV shows? What TV show have you watched recently? Ooh, Frog. Our flag means death. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've heard good things about that. Yeah. Such a good series, or Flag Means. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what about you, Cassandra? Have you been watching that? Uh, from on Amazon Prime, I'm really enjoying the whole people are being stuck in this mysterious town and they're being preyed upon by what looks like unseely fae-type creatures. Um, oh. I hope it does not end the way it lost it, but yeah. we'll see. I've not heard of that one. I have to have a, check that one out. It's excellent. I, 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 can, I can second From. That's a really amazing show. Oh, okay, cool. It's, um, is that is that the one with I forget the actor's name, but the one that was Michael in Lost is that? Yes, is that, yes, Perno, oh. yeah, Harold Perno, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, well, the very last last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. Uh, and obviously, there's no right answer here apart from perhaps one of them. But we'll start off with uh, horror or sci-fi. Horror. Horror. <laughs> okay, okay, that was easy. easy. Uh, TV or cinema. Mm, that's a tough one um right now i have to go with tv um there's just such a variety uh different voices yeah uh night owl or early bird early bird night (laughs) um music or no music when you're writing no music music (laughs) And the last one, real book or ebook? Ooh, tough one. I really like real books, uh, just because real books are lovely, but ebook wins because I I am a speed reader and yeah. Having an ebook helps. Cool. Richard. I love physical books, although these days I tend to get ebooks too, partly because of the setup in my house. I haven't quite set up the living room. I I need a chair with a light where I can read physical books again. So right now, because of the uh, reading logistics, I'm doing a lot of eBooks. Oh, that was a really fantastic episode. Um, really enjoyed that. And what um, a fine Cassandra way was to saying, wrap up the season. A fine way to wrap up the season. And I really enjoyed what Cassandra was saying about, you know, it's okay to make money off your art. Because I think that's something we've touched on before with people. And there's a kind of perception, I think, especially, I guess, if you're new, maybe, and you're kind of just getting your foot in the door and you don't want to... Rock the boat. Rock the boat, come over like an arse, buy pushy or whatever. Um, But it's not selling out. You know, the point of this is to make a living and to be able to do this full time. If that is the goal for you, then you'd absolutely have to make money off it. And that's fine. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, you know, as we were discussing there, there can be um, on the other side of things, from the publisher side of things or, or, or whatever type of writing you're doing, whatever industry, there can often be a sort of, it's as if writing is some sort of different job and you should just be grateful because you've got the chance. Yes. You've got through the gate and you're allowed yeah. to do it now. So just now take you get what to you're eat given. shit. Well yeah, done. Exactly. Eat the shit. Exactly. <laughs> so, no, I think it is very important for for writers to you know stand the ground and, and and not not ridiculously but you know make reasonable requests or whatever yeah yeah for for what they want um and the, the other thing uh Cass mentioned there was that uh, they're working on um a secret uh book tie-in novel which they weren't able to tell us what it was but I believe that the hint they dropped was that if you if you like watching Twitch a lot, Twitch streams a lot, then it would tie in with that. So, they Marco, you are this. someone who watches I a do. lot of Twitch yeah, streams. Yeah, but I, I suspect it's probably not a tie-in novel of Limmy. <laughs> 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 watching Scylla Black and surprise, surprise. I think more likely it's... Uh, Is that what you ta- do these days? Yeah, that's, yeah that's, a, that's some of his base content. I mean, he's uh, probably making more money watching crap TV than he's ever done, actually. Exactly. <laughs> I highly recommend it, genuinely. Um, but, no, I, I think uh, it's likely to be a time novel for Critical Role, the ah, actual play D&D game, okay. which is, I think they are 
the number one channel on Twitch, and they've already really? had a number of tie-in novels. They just did, as we record this last night, they sold out Wembley uh, to do a live play of their their uh, show last night. Sure, so, that's nuts. Um, they are they They're are huge. massive. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what could an, that's the my novels, guess. I could be completely wrong. Are the novels based on? The games they play on the table on the tabletop. Yeah, on the characters, on the characters, characters from. So they've done they, three, they create themselves. They've, they've done yeah. three campaigns. Um, right. So and they've done they've released some books. Um, I think from the first or with characters from the first campaign. I'm not sure if they've done the second campaign. So it may be the second campaign. The mighty mighty nine characters are those ones. So I don't know if it's that. I'm, yes. This is all completely speculative. Well, we'll I could we'll be find entirely out, wrong. We'll find out if but, you're right or not when the lawyers come and yeah, exactly. strip this yeah. episode off the air. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- this is all a guess. So, yeah, please don't do that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm only speculating. But uh, as I said at the start of uh, the episode, this is the last in the current run. Um, we will be off air for a few weeks, but we'll be back um, certainly before the end of the year. And our aim is to have another run of industry episodes which, if you've not checked out, especially our YouTube channel, uh, they are video uh, interviews. You can also listen to them as regular podcasts with some of the leading agents and uh, commissioning editors and people on the other side, not the writers, yeah. but the people that engage the writers, essentially. So to try and get some input from them about what they're looking for, how they work, how it works once you hand a manuscript to them, how it goes from you've written a book, it's great, what happens next? That's that's kind of the focus of those episodes. Yeah, yeah we did a few before, and they're they're so interesting. And I think it's it's a nice change to hear. You know, we've chatted to so many folk getting in, how they broken, what happens next is a really interesting uh, journey. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you want to get in touch, you can always do so by uh, sending us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Or you can find us on pretty much every social media platform by searching for at UK page one. Or uh, if you are on Mastodon, you have to find us by going to writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode, please do take the time to rate and review us as that helps us to continue to get great guests and ensures that we will come back for future seasons. Um, but otherwise, uh, we hope you have as productive a break as us. Uh, and as, we'll as be, we're hoping, yeah. Well, as, I, li- as we're I like it. I think that's good. That's good. No, no, yeah, you're right. As we, as, as thinking, we should be positive, positive thinking. thinking. Exactly. exactly. Uh, and we will be back, as I say, before the end of the year with more new episodes. So we'll speak to you then. See you later. <laughs>